0: Our God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one God, beyond our understanding and our imagining, and closer to us than our breathing and the beating of our heart, today we come to bring our praise and our thanksgiving. We thank you for the gift of life, for calling us into being, and for sustaining us every moment. We thank you that we are part. Of a generation-wide worldwide community of those who name you and are named by you as your people. We thank you that we belong to the great community of human beings, that everywhere we look we meet others made in your image and discover more Of your infinite variety. We thank you for this morning, for being here, for all that has brought us here. We thank you that we come from such different places along such different journeys and here and now we are together and we are turning to you. We thank you for the joy and the delight and the sheer bliss of being alive that has brought us here. And we thank you too for those moments and those extended periods when it has been dark and painful and still we are here. And you have held us. And you have held us when we've been angry and you have held us when we've been despairing And you have held us when we've tried to get away, and so we are here. And we thank you that when we don't understand, still you are with us. And we thank you that when our questions are so much greater than any answer we can find, still you are with us. And we thank you that even when we don't know what we mean when we say you are with us, still you are with us. and we praise you because you are with us because you love us and it is on that love that we depend forgive us we pray when instead of living from love and hope we live out of fear and selfishness and greed forgive us when knowing that our vision of the world is small, we do nothing to try and enlarge it. Forgive us when we want to make everybody like us so that we will be comfortable. And we miss the joy of the diversity that you have made. And we pray now, here, as we are, Forgive us and heal us. Strengthen all that is good and life-giving in us. Deepen our love and broaden our faith. And as we meet one another, help us to meet you more fully. For we ask it in Jesus' name. And together with all your people through time and space, we pray in the words which Jesus gave. Our Father in heaven,
1: First readings take from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 8 and beginning at verse 1. Soon afterwards, Jesus went on through cities and villages, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. The twelve were with him, as well as some women who had been cured of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary, called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out, Joanna, the wife of Herod's steward Chusa, Susanna, and many others who provided for them out of their resources. Second readings take from the first letter to the Corinthians, chapter 9. I'm beginning to read at verse 24. Do you not know that in a race all the runners compete, but only one receives the prize? run in such a way that you may win it. Athletes exercise self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable garland, but we an imperishable one. So I do not run aimlessly, nor do I box as though beaten the earth, but I punish my body and enslave it so that after proclaiming to others, I myself should not be disqualified.
0: I've always found that paragraph in Paul's letter to the Corinthian church somewhat problematic. I am not in the least sporting. And the insistence as it is presented that the prize is only for the one who succeeds serves to remind me that I was the last to be chosen when we were playing games at school. I would do anything to get out of running a race. And I don't recall ever having won a prize in any sporting activity throughout my entire life. Usually, my experience was uh, of being told off for not trying hard enough, which was true, I didn't see the point, Um, or of being laughed at for being clumsy or awkward. So these few verses, with their apparent insistence that the only thing that will please God is to run and beat everybody else, have not inspired in me a great devotion to activity. Rather, they've evoked in me confusion and distress, Because it does seem to run counter to so much else that I read. About community, about interdependence, about life in God not being a system of rewards and punishments, but life in its fullness and its richness and its freedom. And about being loved absolutely. And these verses, rather than speaking of the life of community, of interaction, of justice and cooperation, that otherwise resonate through the stories of Jesus and the discussions of Paul, They seem instead to speak of competition of exclusion only one can win the prize and of doing the other down and so it is if we read it in isolation as some kind of enclosed thought for the day a statement that has no relationship with anything else that we could embroider on a sampler and stick up on the wall to be observed while washing the dishes or used to exhort ourselves or other people to something greater. And I suggest that taking that passage in isolation like that does real harm. Not just because it upsets people like me that can't run races, but because that's not what it's about. If we understand from it that only doing the best and only winning, whatever winning looks like, is worthy and acceptable, then we are getting it wrong. Because the question is, what does winning look like? What is this about? And when we start to ask that, we get somewhere interesting with this paragraph of Paul's letter because that's what it is. It is a paragraph in a letter. It's not a motto for self-improvement. It's not meaningful words to send to somebody to encourage them. It's part of a discussion. Indeed, it's part of an argument that Paul is having with the church in Corinth. The whole chapter, well, most of the letter actually, is Paul defending himself and justifying his position. He did not get on with the Christians in Corinth. They seem to fall out about all sorts of things. And a lot of this letter is him explaining his position and telling them why they're wrong. And as Simon reflected with us last week, at the heart of the whole discussion is how then do we live? What does it mean to explore and exemplify, to live into being God's culture within and through the culture that we inhabit? And the particular situation that Paul was facing was to do with being paid. Previously, Paul has been exploring how not to cause people to stumble. And Simon explored with us the meaning of not causing the little ones to stumble. And from there, Paul went on to to take the nature of the freedom that he said belonged to believers and that shouldn't be abused so that it would cause others to suffer. And then he applies it very directly to his own position. There were those who claimed he was not an apostle. He was not to be trusted as a preacher and a teacher because he did not come from the inner circle of those who had traveled with Jesus. And because in certain circumstances, he disagreed with them. And we read in Acts accounts and direct accounts, but also deeper traces of disagreements. Between Paul and others about what the mission of the gospel is and to whom the gospel should be taken. Does it belong only to the Jews or should it also go to the Gentiles? And who has the right to make those decisions? And certainly at some points in the story, Paul is on one side and Peter, who led that group of friends around Jesus, the one who had the claim to be the true interpreter of the message, he is on the other. They are in disagreement. And so this chapter, which we've just read the end of, follows on from a discussion about freedom and Paul saying, am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Talking about his vision when he was converted. Are you not my workmanship? He's defending his own authority, his own position, his right to be taken seriously. And if we follow through his argument in this chapter, we can see how deeply he takes it. His next sentence is then about the right of the apostle to be supported. It's proper that those who preach the gospel... Those who have the care of the churches are supported for doing this. He gives that and having established it, he then argues, if others share this rightful claim on you, do not we still more? That's him and Barnabas, his co-worker. Don't we have that claim on you? And then he goes on to say, nevertheless, we have not made use of this right. And further on, I am not writing this to secure such provision. Having established what is right and proper, that those who do what he should do should be supported, he then points out he's given up this right. And then he develops the argument in the way Simon explored last week about being all things to all people, and he comes to this final paragraph. And that's the context. That's the lived place where he's making this argument. It's not a disembodied exhortation to work hard in order to please God and earn a place in heaven and win this prize. It's the summary of a position that he's taking, and it's a defense of it. So far from being an exhortation to everybody for self-control in order to win a reward, it's his defense of his decision not to be supported so that he can gain a bigger reward. And that reward is that by all means I may save some. What we were reflecting on last week. The work, the self-control, the giving up of rights is in order that others may discover the life and meaning of the kingdom. That's the aim. That's the reward. And to do it, he will do what needs to be done even if it is against the pattern set by Jesus, really. Remember what the argument is about, the right to be supported by the congregations he ministers to. And our reading from Luke reminds us that Jesus was supported by those around him. And there are other places in the gospel stories where that's also obvious. This is what Jesus did. And he wasn't doing anything odd. That's what wandering teachers and healers did. It allowed them to travel around, to preach, to heal, without being tied to one place to make enough money to live on. Jesus traveled through the country. That's the dominant theme of the gospel story. The way that Jesus traveled around to bring the message of the kingdom to as many people as possible, that by all means he might win some. And Paul is doing something different In order to achieve the same end we're back again to all things to all people in order that by all means we may win some Paul can take a pattern established by Jesus himself indeed the one Jesus instructs his disciples to follow when he sends out his first disciples on a preaching journey he tells them don't take any money depend on others to care for you and Paul can take that pattern and challenge it and change it in order that the same end may be met No wonder some of the apostles were a bit suspicious of them. It's almost like he was saying, just because we've always done it this way, it's not necessarily the only way. Now, we could all have a little smile about this, especially those of us who've been in any congregation for a significant length of time. You know the standard response to any new suggestion. Oh, well, we've never done that. Or, well, we tried that once, but it didn't work. On the whole, that is a position officially we don't want to adopt. We want to be open to new things. We want to try new ways and explore new possibilities. It's part of the DNA of this church that we are up for experimenting and doing new things. We're not always good at it in practice. Like any community, we develop patterns of action, uh, patterns of thought that are easy to stick with just because we know them. And they're hard to change because that takes time and thought and energy. But you know what? We're not as bad as some places. We're actually quite good at doing new things but this is about much more than finding new ways to do stuff. This is about how we listen to the narrative of our faith and live it in reality in a way that's alive for here and now and not trapped by patterns and assumptions that were valid and are no longer life-giving. This past week, we marked the granting of the vote to women over 30 who either owned property or were married to a property owner. It has to be said that the churches on the whole were not in favour of the spread of democracy in its various forms in the UK in the 19th century. Various people have been saying, having been so behind in that advance, how do we ensure we're not doing the same again in our current time and place? What are we missing in terms of shifts that we might want to be paying attention to? And I think it's a valid question. But I'm even more interested in another one about the place and role of women and the activity of the church. It's a common assertion that the church is and always has been deeply patriarchal. And that it's only in our current generation or maybe generations that this has been challenged as well as hundred years since women got the vote. It's hundred years since Baptist started ordaining women in this country. Maybe a couple of generations we've been all right about it. But it's one of the reasons people give for not being part of our seeking the kingdom life. How can we talk authentically <clears throat> about a kingdom of justice and joy when women are harmed by churches? Now, I am the last person to argue the church is not badly distorted by patriarchy in all its forms, and that we're all women and men, complicit in that, and deeply in need of redemption from it. But I will maintain that that has not always been the case, and there are strands of the church's story which are profoundly liberating from the patriarchal narrative. The very passage that we read from the gospel talks about the women who were supporting Jesus from their own resources. And they were traveling with them at a time when that was deeply scandalous and deeply disturbing, that's why it's noted. And if we move into early church history and the rise of consecrated women in the second and third century, women who withdrew from society to live in houses together It's very easy, from our perspective, to read that as a restrictive soul-crushing message about the denial of fulfilment, the repression of sexuality. But in its context, it was a way for women not only to reach for, but to attain a possibility of self-determination and an identity that wasn't governed by their biology in a context where that didn't happen. Uh, They could live under their own guidance, and they were choosing not to have their lives defined in terms of the men to whom they belonged the husband the father the son and so not to be defined only by their sexuality and their fertility they were defying what had previously been a godly and accepted pattern and finding a new way but then that turns into a way of life that could and did for some time become a way of controlling women getting them out of sight and out of mind demonizing female sexuality and regarding it as dangerous to men and the enclosed monasteries of the Middle Ages, which offered amazing opportunities and had some amazing women like Hilda and Hildegard and Catherine and so on. But they were also places where the fear of the body and the loss of identity were sanctified. And so with the development of the Reformation, we see the opposite of that early movement happening and being kingdom life exemplified. Nunneries and enclosures were thrown open and marriage became a godly possibility, not a less than best compromise. And a new thing, achieving the same end, was explored and developed. Something that had been good and right and proper, then was, had turned into something damaging and had to be changed. Just because we have done it and it was godly, does not mean it remains so. The question is, what is it about? What is the aim? As Paul puts it, what is the prize? that is to be attained? What is it that we do, that we do with apparently good sanction and the witness of history, that we now need to examine and challenge and to let go of in order to achieve the end that was originally intended? Which of our good and godly practices have now become limiting and dangerous and self-serving? The way we organize worship? The people we invite to lead? The care we offer to those whose vulnerability challenges us, the forms of family that we celebrate. All of those have behind them good and godly histories, but are they still appropriate now? If Paul were asked or being supported by a congregation, what would Jesus do? His answer would have to be that which I am rejecting. It's not so much what would Jesus do, it's why did Jesus do it and therefore what is to be done? Because he could follow it up. We are doing what we do for the same reasons that by all means we may win some. I am free from the law in order to serve appropriately. He is not doing what Jesus did, but he's seeking to attain the same ends, but therefore how does he know? How does he choose what to do, on what basis does he make his decision. His decision not to be paid, to choose this different path, is what he's explaining in this paragraph. This isn't about do the best you can so you're holier than anybody else and you'll win a prize that others will miss. The center of his argument is not run to win the prize, it is I do not run aimlessly, I do not box as if beating the air. That's the main point he's making. The games around Corinth, the ones he's kind of referring, the ones that people would know about, they would a well-known pre-match entertainment. Before the main bouts, there was shadow boxing, the showing off and posing and striking attitudes that got the spectators roused up and engaged. They weren't in the competition, they weren't re- rewarded with anything, but they got everybody going. Races had the similar pre-race show. If you think about horse racing now, you know when they march the horses around the parade ground so everybody can see them and enjoy them and it gets people excited and involved. No one actually wins anything. It's the same thing. It's showing off to the crowds and preening and posing and generally peacocking it. And part of not being paid for his work for Paul was the freedom not to have to do this, not to have to please people. He didn't have to show off. He didn't have to get the crowds all on his side, because he was not dependent on them. And so he could tell the truth and not do the showy, flattering stuff that ensured the gifts flowed in. He didn't have to shadow box or run around aimlessly to show off. His energy and his determination was committed to doing whatever it took to be what it was that was needed so that people could encounter the kingdom. It was committed to hard work and commitment and focus. And he wasn't concerned to be popular or win friends or impress people. His refusal to exercise his right to be supported, even when there was a command and an example from Jesus that that was what was to be done, was that in order that, by all means, he could win some. That is, he would pay the cost so that others could discover life. That's the price he was seeking, the coming of the kingdom as widely and as fully as he could live it. He wasn't concerned with gaining lots of public support, with looking good, with putting on a good show and impressing the crowds. He was committed to following his master who did whatever it took to make the kingdom come up to and including dying alone. So if we can't ask easily what would Jesus do as a way of answering choices and decisions facing us. What do we do? How do we decide what's right and holy and godly? How do we use our freedom well in order that the kingdom comes? It's too easy, as Simon pointed out last week, to have a pat set of answers, to look to scripture, to sort it out and read off a response. It's too easy and it doesn't work. If that was the answer, Paul would prove he was an apostle by letting others support him because that's what Jesus did. But he chose instead to mend tents and work leather so he could be self-supporting in order that others would discover life. And here's what he's about. The prize that he is seeking is what determines his actions. I do this so I'm not excluded from the prize. And the prize that Paul is talking about is, is what's in the whole letter. It's the life in God through Jesus that makes the world different. The coming of the kingdom. The aim is just that of Jesus that we read summarized in Luke 8, 1. He was supported by the women who were around him as he went proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom. The kingdom, that culture, that way of living and of being that's about justice and joy, about life in its fullness, about hope and possibility and thriving. That's what underlies it all. And to be that, to offer that, to encounter that cannot be created by adhering to a list of rules and patterns that emerged in other places and times. It cannot be forced by insisting on a set of structures that are predetermined and then parachuted into a particular system. The kingdom has underlying values that shape differing structures at different times. Women living in enclosed communities within a patriarchal society is at one time life giving and at another time life smothering. And we need to pay attention to what justice and hope look like now and here for us for the people around us we need to notice what the culture is that we're in and what it looks like to bring hope and insight and we need the inspiration of the Spirit in our reflection and our discernment because even when Paul and Jesus are doing different things it is for the same end and it exposes the same intention that people discover a life that is rooted and grounded in the love of the God who sustains all that is and who is in all things. Paul's quite explicit. Earlier on in the letter, he said this. There is one God, the Father, from whom all things are and for whom we exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ through whom all are all things and through whom we exist. And all and everything is about living that truth so that the world changes. And so we come to Lent, which starts this week. And my Lent or to exhortation is don't do Lent stuff because it has not been our pattern and we we gave it up because it was a human institution. That might be true, but this might also be a moment to do something new and something that wasn't done before because now it's got something to offer. We are free to do whatever it takes to see the kingdom come and Lent can be a good period for that. I know one person cutting down on use of plastic for Lent. I know another who will only be using public transport. I know of somebody who's exploring what it would mean to give up complaining for Lent. Another who will give up drinking wine not because wine is bad, but so that the money used for that can instead be given to provide water for people living in drought. There are all kinds of possibilities if you want to explore them. But really, really, don't do the Lent stuff or any other form of self-denial in order to impress God and to find a way, prize, way beyond the blue. Don't do the Lent stuff because it will make you a better person and therefore more worthy of a prize. Don't do the Lent stuff because if you fail at it, God will be disappointed or angry or will disqualify you. We are loved. We are loved beyond our imagining. We are held more securely than anything we can attain through what we do or what we give up. You could do Lent because it frees people. You could do Lent to challenge systems that oppress. You could do Lent because it leads you and others into a life that is shaped by love and open to joy and grounded in justice. That is the life that is in God. That is the life that is for Jesus. That is what it is to run the race. That is the promise of the one who will never let us go and whose love will hold us eternally. Amen.